Good morning. Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. And Luke 10, verse 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look, at, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you, Sarah. One little boy said to another, what do your parents do? And the little guy said, well, they're in the iron and steel, steel business. Uh, my mom irons and my dad steals. The dumb joke. <laughs> <laughs> We're on commandment number eight, uh, thou shalt not steal. What is stealing? Stealing is the illegitimate acquisition of property. And like I had just prayed, Jesus said the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. You're probably thinking, well, I don't steal. It's going to be a boring sermon well, wait a minute, there's lots of ways that we can steal. We can steal from others, we can steal from God, and we can steal from ourselves. Not paying an honest wage can be stealing. Always driving a hard bargain can be stealing. Let me ask you something. Did Jesus drive the merchants out of the temple because they were stealing birds and other things there? No. Birds and animals were always sold in the temple because devout Jews needed to make uh, sacrifices with them. But those merchants were taking advantage of the situation to profit from the poor. They drove uh, the poor into debt by charging unfair prices. And Jesus said they had turned God's house into a what? <laughs> into a den of robbers. And so Jesus considered taking unfair advantage an act of thievery. Students can steal answers for a test. You know, plagiarism. That's another form of, of stealing. What about gambling? I mean, that's a sermon in itself. But there is a connection, or is there a connection, between gambling and actual stealing? The American Institute, Insurance Institute has estimated that up to 40% of white-collar crimes, such as embezzlement, can be traced to compulsive gambling. Not paying debts is a form of stealing. We don't use our bodies to, to honor God. Uh, we are stealing from God because the Bible says that we're not our own. Our bodies belong to God. When we don't tithe, we steal from God because the tithe belongs to the Lord. 
Malachi wrote, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse. The whole nation of you because you are robbing me. Hey, Dave Mata didn't write that. God did. You can also steal from yourself. When you refuse to surrender to God, Jesus said, whoever will save his life, that is steal it from God, will lose it. But whoever will lose it, that is give it to God, will find it. Given it shall be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together. Jeremiah 5.25 says, your sins have deprived you of good. You lose when you don't obey God. You know, God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. That's how much God loves you. And you're afraid to trust a God like that? You're afraid to surrender your life to a God like that? You rob yourself. You cheat yourself. You swindle yourself. You steal the joy and the peace and the happiness and the holiness that God wants you to have. What kind of strange person would steal from himself? Some of you old-timers remember when the lights went out in New York City, I think it was the late 60s, early 70s. They caught 3,500 looters. They would have caught more if they had more police and more time. The lights went out and look what happened. They say a test of a man's character is what he is in the dark. And with God, the scripture says, night and day, they're alike to him. We try to be so sneaky, but God sees I loved a little story about a robber. He went into a bank, handed a note to the teller, and, and, and it said, give me all your money. This is a stick-up. And the teller wrote him a note back which said, straighten your tie, stupid. They're taking your picture. God's candid camera is always rolling. The darkness and the light are alike to him, whether we steal a gumball or we rob a bank. Almighty God said, thou shalt not steal. Exodus 20, verse 15. And along with the text from Exodus, Sarah just read... Uh, the famous parable of the good Samaritan in Luke 10, 25 to 37. And this parable has been given really, I mean, if you look at some of the commentaries, lots of different interpretations over the years. One such, such interpretation went like this. The wounded man represents Adam, you know, the first man. Jerusalem, from which he journeyed, represents the state of innocence from which Adam fell. The thieves who beat Beat him up are, are the devil who deprived Adam of eternal life. And the priest and the Levite are Old Testament religion, which passed by and couldn't help him. And the good Samaritan, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ who comes to his rescue. And the end to which he was taken is the church. You say, well, what's the meaning of the two pennies that were given to the innkeeper? Some say they represent the two testaments. Personally, I think such allegorical interpretations read way too much into the plain meaning of the text, although it's kind of fun to talk about once in a while. What I want to do today is I want to make some application. I want to look at this parable and specifically its key players or its principal players as examples of three distinct lifestyle philosophies concerning wealth. And these lifestyle philosophies, I think, can be seen in the lives of each of these three main characters in this familiar story. First of all, number one, the thieves. The road from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho was rugged. We saw a little bit about that last uh, April. 
Deep ravines, tall rock outcroppings line this route, making it convenient for robbers to lay in hiding until an unsuspecting victim approached. And in the story before us, the robbers were exercising this philosophy of wealth. What belongs to my neighbor belongs to me, and I will take it. Luke records that the robbers did three distinct things to this man, and I don't think it's accidental. Verse 30 of Luke chapter 10 says, first of all, they stripped him, they beat him, and then they finally left him for dead. Now, these robbers were most likely Jewish, and the reason they did not kill the man was because that was a capital crime in Jewish law, whereas stealing and beating were misdemeanors, and these fellows were good enough, Jews, to avoid killing but not so good to be above a free meal or two at a stranger's expense. The attitude of what belongs to my neighbor belongs to me and I will take it is not all that uncommon in our society. I mean, who among us has not borrowed a few stamps or a few paper clips or pencils from our employers? Who among us has not maybe borrowed a tool from a neighbor and conveniently forgotten to return it? I used to lend out my books. Now I just give them away. If a borrower returns it, I'm happy, happier. And the philosophy appears in a number of ways in our society when people continue to live beyond their means as a way of maintaining their status. I think that this, is, this thievery philosophy is at work. I mean, failing to give an honest day's work for a day's wage might also qualify. Going into debt with no intention of repaying is certainly an example. Reporting false expenses on expense accounts or income tax returns might also qualify. And certainly, I think the most devastating, almost universally accepted form of thievery is found in our modern-day dens of iniquity, you know, promoted as family fun, the gambling halls, and the lottery games, literally everywhere on our American landscape. The thieves saw a victim to exploit. Verse 30, They stripped him, beat him, left him for dead. What belongs to my neighbor belongs to me, and I'm going to take it, the thieves. The second key player, I think, is the priest and the Levite. Just combine them into one. Jesus continued this uh, pointed parable by now introducing two persons, I think each representative of a larger faction. You got the priests, and you got the Levites, and both these groups represent the essence of what made a a Hebrew, a Hebrew, uh, their religion. But unlike the predominant assumption regarding these religious types, these two-bit players in our story do something completely out of character. They avoid the injured man, and they walk by on the other side. We all know the story. At first glance, they might be forgiven for this slight. Notice that whereas the robber was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, these two were making their way to Jerusalem, you know, that haven of religious worship, presumably to officiate at some religious sacrifice or ceremony. Certainly, they would not be expected to defile themselves by handling this dead body or almost dead body or this pulverized pauper and have to go through that extensive ritual cleaning again. Certainly the service they were about to engage in was 
more worthy and necessary than, the, than, than addressing the needs of a wanderer on his way to who knows uh, what in that evil city called Jericho? Why, in some ways, I bet they even entertained thoughts that this poor sucker probably had it coming to him. These two religious leaders were living out a philosophy of wealth defined like this. What belongs to me is mine, and I'm going to keep it. What belongs to me is mine, and I'm going to keep it. Lest we forget whom these two represent, let me make it clear. I think they're a metaphor of us. We are religious leaders in our world, really. Nation, in our state, in our city. We are to be the ears, eyes, and mouths, and hands, and feet of Jesus, of our great God. And how often do we walk by on the other side? Oh, we would never stoop so low to steal from another, but how often do we steal by withholding our money and our talents and our time and our attention from people who just have simple, simple needs? How often do we grab and and grapple and just go for all the gusto and hang on to it as if our lives depended on it when a simple act of charity is actually within our means? Charles Allen, in his book on the Ten Commandments, reminds us every dollar that we possess carries a corresponding obligation. I'll say that again. Every dollar that we possess carries a corresponding obligation. These religious men saw in the beaten robber not only a victim to exploit, but a nuisance to avoid. Verse 31 says, they passed by on the other side. What belongs to me is mine, and I'm going to keep it. So you got the thieves, you got the priest and the Levite. The third key player in this parable, of course, is the Good Samaritan. We know the story from here on out, but again, notice something uh, intriguing here. Jesus uses the most despised beings in the human race, at least in the eyes of every good Jew, to actually be the hero of the story. The Samaritans were intermarried tribes with half-breeds, and yet in this man we find kind of a a Jesus figure. We kind of find a savior figure. It says he's moved with compassion when he sees that man and his condition. And he bandaged his wounds with oil and wine, and he lifts him up onto his own beast, and he takes him to an inn and looks after him there, and and he pays his debt in full. And the promises to take care of future debt upon his return, he promises. And you talk about uh, second mile giving here. This man, by his actions, demonstrates the philosophy of wealth we might call what belongs to me belongs to God. And I will share it. What belongs to me belongs to God. And I will share it. The right of private ownership and enterprise is not necessarily something we have earned, either by birthright or the fact that we're Americans. They are our God-given privilege and responsibility. Each of us has been given abilities and talents and gifts and opportunities and material resources from God. They all belong to him. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. They're not really ours. They belong to God. And they're God's investments in us. 
And to hoard them or bury them or waste them or ignore them is just as great a sin as stealing a man's jacket or not feeding a hungry woman. The robber saw a victim to exploit. The priest and the Levite saw an, a nuisance to avoid. And the Samaritan saw an opportunity to minister to the needs of this man. In verses 33 to 35, he saw the man and he did something about it. I love Ephesians 4, 28. It says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. But he must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. This Good Samaritan's ministry, his ministry involved, I think, four major points that I just think that we should emulate. And the first one is just compassion. You know, our hearts can get hard after a while, right? I know mine can. Sometimes I get tired of people coming in asking for things. Placing yourself in the individual's position and then acting the way you want others to act if it were you. Empathy is different than sympathy. Personal passion and a commitment to care are different than just pity. Our pity doesn't meet anyone's needs. It says here that he was moved to action. His heart was actually touched. It's called compassion. For God so loved the world that he did something, right? He gave. Even while we were his enemies, he gave. He demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, it's compassion. And not only compassion, but contact. He refused to allow the man to stay in the condition he was in. He came to him to help him, just like Jesus, who loves us enough to meet us where we are, but... He loves us too much to just leave us that way. I mean, Jesus, he left. He's the son of God, the eternal son of God. He left the glory of heaven. I mean, that was a nice place to be. But he came to this dark world. He put on skin. He was born in a barn. He had contact. He touched people. He touched the leper. You weren't supposed to do that. Compassion, contact, and then care. Once he had made contact, he did something about the needs the man had. You know, sometimes I think helping gets messy. Sometimes it involves more money than we thought we were able to give. Sometimes it just doesn't work out. And sometimes we don't know the rest of their story. And that's kind of the way caring is. Maybe this guy gets healed up and he becomes like this God-fearing Jew, or maybe he continues on to Jericho and and on down a self-destructive road, we, we just don't know. But this we do know. No one will care how much we know until they know how much we care. I know that's a cliche, but it's true. You know, God did demonstrate his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think people are crying out, don't just tell me about Jesus. Show me Jesus. If he's living in you, show me Jesus, compassion, contact, care, and then cost. I think a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. The Old Testament records that even God was repulsed by a sacrifice brought into the temple because it cost its owners nothing. 
It costs money, time, and sometimes sacrifice to meet people's needs. It costs money to preach the gospel and to win a world for Christ. Dare any of us judge the cost too great? Consider what God paid. You know, the Bible says we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but we're redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Salvation is free, but it costs Jesus his very life. And he lived a life that we can't live, and he died a death that we cannot die. Maybe that allegorical interpretation isn't too far off. Maybe Jesus is that ultimate good Samaritan, the one who with compassion saw our need and he walked those dusty roads and he rescued us. He rescued Adam's helpless race who who were left beaten and bruised by sin and by Satan on the side of the road and he bandaged up our wounds and with his love he poured out into us the, the wine of his forgiveness and the oil of grace and carried our sins all the way to Calvary where on the cross he paid the price. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. The just one died for the unjust to to bring us to God. Even though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. That through his poverty, we might become rich. Thou shalt not steal. We've all broken this commandment. Every one of us. We're all thieves in some way, shape, or form. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need the cross. Hey, if you've never received Christ, don't rob yourself. Don't rob yourself any longer. Don't rob yourself of the love, of the joy, and the peace, and the only one who can heal your soul and forgive your sins and fit you for heaven. Like I said at the beginning, Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and to kill, and to destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And every third Sunday, we have what we call a circuit rider come riding in on a horse. Last month, it was Wayne Eastman. And this week, I have asked Kyle to come riding in. He's gonna take us home on this sermon, right? Take us home, Kyle. As Dave uh, asked me a few weeks back to, to share this week, um, different thoughts went through my, my mind on what this would look like. Um, we joked this morning that I should ride on the black horse with the black hat and pull my bandana up and uh, uh, be the thief, the robber that way. Or maybe uh, I'd use a little illustration with pull the ladder out and get up and try to get that big screen down off of there stealing and robbing that way. Um, But as God led and kind of shared his direction on what he wanted this to look like, um, he confirmed a couple times this past week um, through a passage that came up Wednesday morning and then came up yesterday morning as well. Uh, It's from 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, starting in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David... He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. 
and he bought, brought it up, and grew, it grew up with him and with his children, and he used to eat of its morsel and drink from its cup and, to, and, and lie in its, his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. And so, as I was thinking about this week and this message, this time, you know, there was some temptation, the old man rearing up inside of me uh, to, to not make it too tough on myself or anyone else, or maybe to make it more about you and less about me up here as we looked at uh, stealing. And it's easy to, to rationalize, it's easy to hide, it's easy to ignore, you know, what God has for us. You shall not steal. Well, I'm not robbing banks, right? As Dave said, you know, I'm not, you know, stealing the TVs out of people's houses. I'm not the, the guy caught embezzling so he could go on all those hunting trips and uh, feel good about myself for not doing those things um, and kind of share from that stance. But God showed me, you are that man. And this isn't the, the Tiger Woods, you the man, you know, positive thing. This is, you know, the convicting you know, this is you. You steal. Um, and especially when we dig deeper into these um, Ten Commandments, um, you can just see how it goes so much deeper than what just uh, the short verses show. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus did some of this, uh, further explaining, you know, you shall not murder, um, and taking that to anger and what that really looks like in our heart. You know, you shall not commit adultery is so much more than just the physical act. Um, it's what's going on in our minds, the lust uh, that we see. And you shall not steal is the same thing. It goes so much deeper than r- jumping into, you know, someone's car and stealing it uh, and running away with it, hoping to not get caught. Uh, Dave hit on a lot of the different ways uh, that we can steal. Um, and it is. You know, that putting in those hard six hours of work and getting paid for eight, right? It is, you know, taking the salt and pepper shaker from the restaurant thinking no one will really miss it because I didn't want to stop at the store on the way home, right? Um, You know, robbing God of the tithe, Dave hit on that one as well. Um, Who do we think we're kidding, uh, you know, when we do some of these things and then rationalize them away? They're not really that big a deal. Um, God's calling us to imitate him. God's calling us to be holy uh, to follow him. And maybe one of the biggest ones that hit me this week is I was thinking about how we, how we rob, how we steal. Um, and it comes from my arrogance, comes from my pride, um, comes from just uh, my self-reliance. Um, when I want to do it my way, uh, and then on top of it, I want to take credit for it. I want to take all the glory for it and not really share any of it with God. You know, it's God's glory we should be doing things for as we love, as we live, as we're husbands, fathers, as we work, uh, we should do it all for the glory of God. And too often, 
I want to steal that glory. I let the old man rise back up in me uh, and take that uh, glory for myself instead of praising God and truly pointing to him in and through all that we do. And I don't pretend this is, this is easy. A lot of this is, is hard uh, in this life. Uh, to truly be holy as God is holy, to imitate him uh, in everything that we do. Uh, but the positive is, you know, we don't have to do it alone. Uh, God is there. He wants to work in and through us. He wants to, to be with us every step of the way. Uh, if we just surrender, if we just let him do that, uh, he will gladly be there and to help us through these things. Uh, the law, as we've been going through it here, it's not this big burdensome list of things because God really doesn't like us and wants to just stick his thumb down on us. Um, it's a part of God's love for us. It's what's best for us. Um, these things lead to a better life. They're not burdensome when we have Jesus with us. His yoke is light, right? And so we want to have this attitude that I want to follow you, God. I want to love you, God. I don't want to hide from you. I don't want to rationalize these things away. I want to follow you in all that you are. And part of that is obeying the law, this law that is for our good, for the good of us, those around us, this law that, to begin with, you know, we just can't follow, that points us to our need for Jesus, our need for a Savior. And so as we look at the law, as we look at do not steal, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not covet, um, you know, just let that work in and through us and understand that while it's hard to follow it on our own, you know, with God we can do that. And will we be perfect? No. Are we going to stumble? Are we going to fall? You bet we're going to stumble. We're going to fall. Um, but don't let the grace that God has us, let us abuse it just because we know he'll forgive us. Romans, beginning of Romans 6, you know, what then? Should we continue to sin so God's grace may abound? By no means. You know, we're dead to that sin. We want to leave that in the past. And so as we look forward from this point on, you know, we want to follow God in all that we have. You know, and we see, circling back to that Second Samuel, um, after Nathan confronted David, um, and this was right after David had... Uh, uh, committed a whole litany of sins, um, starting with his lust and temptation for Bathsheba that he took to adultery and murder and, and covering it up, just uh, continuing on down the list. And Nathan confronted him. And then at the end of this, um, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know, he didn't hide it anymore. When he was confronted by it, he accepted it. And he was willing to accept, you know, whatever was going to come because of that. And there were some not-so-good consequences for David through this. The loss of a child, you know, never building the temple, just different things that uh, were taking away from him as he did that. And so as, as we kind of, my time wraps up here, I guess maybe the main point of my thoughts today of God's, hopefully God's thoughts for all of us is, you know, these messages... They're for me. You know, they're for you. You know, it's easier to sit out here and think Dave's talking to someone else. This message is for someone else. Um, but there's something for you and there's something for me in all of this. And so I don't know what that is today in regards to, you know, thou shall not steal. Whether it's in the workplace, whether it's who knows where. Um, robbing God of the tithe, whether it's stealing his glory 
uh, like I have a tendency to want to do. Um, but this message is for you. And so I just would let, you know, God's loving conviction flow over all of us today. And uh, we'll just leave it at that as I pray. So, Lord, we do love you. And we just do thank you for the love that you show us, Lord. Lord, and we know that you uh, discipline, you instruct uh, those that you love, Lord. And if you didn't care about us, you'd probably just, you know, let us head down our path uh, to destruction. But you do love us so much. And part of that love for us is your instructions to us, uh, your commandments to us. You're rebuking us when we need it, Lord. And so we just want to be open to that. Give us open hearts, open souls to what you have for us today, Lord. And let us just take them to heart. Let us truly take them to heart. Not run from them, not hide from them, not think it's too hard, not rationalize them away, but just truly be open to what you have for us today. The areas in in our lives where we need to confess, we need to repent, we need to turn from, and then we need to trust in you as we follow you in those things going forward. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, thank you, Kyle. And Father, we just continue this prayer and we just thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of your forever family. Thank you for your perfect law, Lord, that is a perfect reflection of your love and your character and yet, Lord, it's the law that brings conviction to us, that shows us how much we really need Jesus and we really need his forgiveness, Lord. And So I pray that as believers in Christ today, we will go out in the power of the Holy Spirit wanting to obey you because we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.